Have you ever complained to God? You know you have. Have you ever seriously felt like complaining to God? If so, you're going to love the prophet that we're going to consider this weekend. His name was Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Either is correct. Both pronunciations would be anathema in the ears of a Hebrew person. And as you'll see, Habakkuk wasn't the least bit shy about voicing his displeasure with the way God was answering his prayers and conducting his business. And God wasn't shy about answering him and setting him straight. It made for an intriguing conversation. More importantly, it ended with a miraculous transformation because the book that begins with unrestrained complaint ends with unrestrained praise. Habakkuk voiced two significant complaints to God. And to launch us into our study, I want to consider what he said after he had lodged his second complaint. He said in chapter 2, verse 1, I will keep watch to see what God will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved or corrected. I've entitled this week's teaching, Habakkuk's Complaint. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that the same Holy Spirit that moved the prophet to write Scripture is in this room with us to help us understand the words and their implications for our lives. In recognition of that, I would ask that your Spirit would empower me to faithfully teach from the Word and empower us to faithfully apply it in our lives because that's the point of our being here. And as always, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for the voice of God this afternoon, may the Lord be with you. Habakkuk is unique among all of the Old Testament prophets. Because while the other prophets communicated God's message to their nation, to other nations, or to humanity in general, Habakkuk communicated his own personal complaint to God. And the book that bears his name is the transcript of a frank conversation between a prophet we know very little about and a God that we often struggle to know. Habakkuk opened the conversation, and he didn't spend time on polite niceties. And he didn't follow David's instructions to enter through God's gates with thanksgiving, enter God's courts with praise. No, driven by his obvious frustration, here's how the prophet launched into the conversation. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you about violence and yet you don't save. And I could just imagine God wanted to say, and it's good to see you too, Habakkuk. <laughs> A no-holds-barred complaint and accusation. He just 
dove right in because this had been building in his heart. Now, God didn't take his cues from the prophet, thankfully, or he would have ghetto slapped him immediately. (laughs) Instead, his eventual gracious response was very gracious. And it didn't contain even a hint of rebuke. And that tells me that Habakkuk's complaint didn't grow out of unbelief because God would have called him on that. Besides, he was confident God would hear him and God would answer him. And his complaint wasn't rooted in selfish interests. He made it very clear he was concerned about God's reputation and he was concerned about his nation, Judah. So contrary to what we often assume about complaining, strong faith doesn't remove the possibility of complaint, it may actually increase it. Now, why would I say such a thing? Because faith opens our eyes to see things that we wouldn't see otherwise. It opens our eyes to see things differently. It leads us to value things that we wouldn't value otherwise. It leads us to be deeply concerned over things we wouldn't care about otherwise. And when you put all of that together, it makes you a little more susceptible to complaint than less susceptible. And I'm stressing that right out of the starting gate because whenever we feel a complaint against God rising up in our hearts, the first thing we tend to do is scold ourselves. We try to talk ourselves back off the edge of the cliff by shaming ourselves. How could you think that about the Lord? But I want to remind you, rather than scolding yourself, when you feel a complaint arising, remind yourself that your complaint doesn't automatically signal evil in your heart. It may just signal that you've seen things because God has opened your eyes and you care about things that you didn't care about previously. You see, a complaint may indicate that your faith is genuine and you're paying attention. And I stress that because if you're aware of that fact, it'll help you to avoid two parasites that like to hitch a ride on our complaints. The accusations of Satan, you don't really love God, and human false guilt. You don't want to wallow in those things. Now, Habakkuk's nation was in a bad place. The left was corrupt, the right was corrupt, and everything in between was corrupt, and that ought to sound familiar. Violence, lawlessness, injustice. Those were the words the prophet used to describe the epidemic of sin in his nation. Year after year after year, the populace of Judah ignored prophet after prophet after prophet. The hope of revival was on life support. So Habakkuk's frustration was righteous. He had a good reason to be frustrated. But righteous frustration can lead to unrighteous forgetfulness. We can become so focused on some evil that we're concerned about that we forget some important truth of God that will help us to deal with that evil appropriately. 
and Habakkuk had done that. That's why he accused God of silence, indifference, and negligent. What he forgot is the prolonged evil doesn't signal God's absence. It signals the absence of repentance. Not God's absence, but the absence of repentance. You see, evil persists in the world because God doesn't force repentance. He invites repentance. He encourages repentance. He enables repentance, but he doesn't force repentance. See, forced repentance would be a contradiction in terms. It would be meaningless, like forced love, forced obedience, forced loyalty. Contradiction after contradiction after contradiction. Habakkuk's complaint also reminds us that most complaints against God originate in some critical omission. Something we know about God, but we've overlooked it. And the prophet's complaint was no exception. In his righteous frustration over the state of affairs in Judah, he overlooked the fact that God's delays are often an expression of his mercy. God's delays are often an expression of his mercy. All of the prophets knew that a loving God can't be indifferent to sin. Just as a loving physician can't be indifferent to disease. The prophets all knew that God prefers mercy over judgment. Given a choice, he would always rather extend mercy than judge. And so he's willing to wait patiently for the opportunity to extend mercy to sinning humanity. His delays are an expression of his mercy. Now, Habakkuk's complaint that God had done nothing in response to his prayers was bogus. God had done something. He had sent prophet after prophet to speak to the people, and that hardly represents nothing. And here's why. God's most powerful response to evil is his word. His word. Now, Jesus made that very clear. If you've read the New Testament, you remember the story. It's not a parable. It was a story. Story of a rich man who mistreated a poor beggar in life, and in death... The beggar is in God's presence, and the rich man is experiencing God's absence. And the rich man says, I, I know I can't get out of here, but can you send somebody back from this place to warn my family? And you remember Jesus' response to him? Jesus said, they already have Moses and the prophets. They already have the written word of God. If that isn't enough, to convince them of the need of faith, somebody returning from the dead would make no difference whatsoever. And what was Jesus saying? The word is more powerful than miracles because a lot of people saw Jesus do a lot of miracles and they didn't believe. God's word is his most powerful response to our prayers. 
Because God's word isn't just words. It's an extension of God himself. God is in his word. It's alive because God is in it. It's powerful because God is in it. It discerns the thoughts of our hearts because God is in it. It never returns without having effect. It changes those who receive it. It changes those who reject it. It brings conviction. It brings enlightenment. It brings direction. It brings salvation. So the problem wasn't God's failure to hear Habakkuk. The problem was Judah's failure to hear God. That's where the problem was. And if I could just point out as an aside, the less you open your Bible to encounter the powerful Word of God, the more open you will be to complaints against God. Judah complaining that God was silent when they weren't opening his word was akin to somebody complaining that they haven't got a text from their friend when their phone is off. If you want to hear from God, start with his living word. Upon hearing his servant's complaint, God countered with an explanation. But his answer hardly settled the matter. In fact, it made matters worse. Habakkuk learned that there are worse things than not knowing what God is up to, namely, knowing what God is up to. And that's what he discovered. And that's why God's answer to our complaint may, in fact, increase our complaint. God told him, oh, I've been responding. I've been putting everything in place for an appropriate response to your prayers. And when you see what I've been up to, God said, it's unbelievable. But not in the way Habakkuk was hoping. You see, years earlier, another prophet named Isaiah had spoken a prophecy about Judah. And just like the prophecies about the second coming of Christ to this world, the people of Judah forgot the prophecy when it didn't happen overnight. But God never forgets his prophecies. And the time for the fulfillment of that prophecy had come. And he told the startled prophet, Judah is going to be conquered by the Chaldeans, a.k.a. Babylon, and your people are going to be exiled, and then further down the road, I'm going to judge the Chaldeans. Now, no surprise, Habakkuk described God's answer as a burden he couldn't bear. He said, God, you just laid something on me that I can't handle. He had struggled to understand what he perceived to be God's lack of activity. Now he was going to struggle with God's promised and revealed activity. And he was going to struggle with God's heart. Habakkuk knew his nation deserved punishment and discipline. But despite their stubborn sin, here's what he couldn't understand. How can a holy God use an idol-worshiping, cruel, corrupt, 
pagan people like the Chaldeans to judge his own covenant people and the descendants of Abraham. Because for all of their failings and stubbornness, Judah was certainly more righteous than the Chaldeans who worshipped idols and didn't believe in the living God. How could God use evil to punish evil in his own people? Now, once again, the prophet showed forgetfulness and oversight. He based his feelings on the false assumption that the people of Judah were more righteous than the Chaldeans. And what he forgot in that is the fact that nobody is righteous. Scripture makes that very clear. All have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us are fallen creatures in need of forgiveness and restoration. None are righteous. Are believers pronounced righteous by God? Yes, thank God. But our righteousness is not our own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ deposited into our spiritual bank account. It's not ours. So the idea that the people of Judah were more righteous than the Chaldeans. Look, yes, the Chaldeans worshipped idols, but the people of Judah had been exposed to the word of God all their life, and they were still sinning. You could make the argument, because of their knowledge, they were less righteous than the pagans. It's one thing to sin in ignorance. It's another to sin knowingly. Only God is righteous. The prophet also forgot what God wanted to do in Judah. He assumed God wanted to ensure their survival as a people and the protection of their liberty and their economy. But God's agenda was their holiness, their spiritual recovery. And if allowing them to be conquered and exiled would eventually lead to their spiritual recovery, then that was the path God was going to follow. Judah was going to taste both God's judgment and God's grace because judgment and grace aren't contradictory. They complement one another. And if you'll remind yourself of that fact, It'll help you avoid unnecessary complaints about the way God conducts his affairs. And we need to remind ourselves of that fact in this current culture. Because ours is a culture that is continually complaining about God. And it complains about God because God refuses to honor its impossible demands. What do I mean? Ours is a culture that desires two things. Grace without judgment and love without correction. You hear it all the time. If you critique anything I do, if you suggest I need to correct anything about my conduct, that's a microaggression. You've attacked my personhood. You've attacked my identity. You cannot possibly love me. If you love me, you have to affirm everything about me. I wish somebody would have gotten that memo to my father. 
because I was no stranger to his belt. My sisters and I used to say, Dad has the fastest belt in Butler, Pennsylvania. If we disobeyed, if we sassed him, two, two, two motions, belt out, belt doubled, belt liberally applied to the seat of learning. Because love corrects. When I became an adult, I said, Dad, thank you for every spanking you ever gave me. Because one, I knew I was loved. Two, I knew there are boundaries for human behavior. And three, I learned that trespassing the boundaries brings consequences. And if you aren't convinced that God loves you and that there are boundaries and that violating God's boundaries will bring consequences, you are going to find yourself in a hot mess. Love always corrects. And grace always goes hands and hand in hand with judgment. That's the way God operates. You can't have grace without judgment because God's grace judges sin. That's what grace does. It judges sin, and then God's judgment points us to his grace. Judgment says this is not a path you want to stay on because it leads to certain ruin. And God disciplining us when we're on the wrong path then points us back to his restoring grace. And so Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, eventually came to see that's what God was up to. That's the explanation for God's startling revelation. Now earlier, in the words with which we opened from Habakkuk, the prophet said, Lord, when you correct me, I'm going to give thought to how I'm going to reply. And he kept his word. Earlier, he had entered God's courts with complaint. So after the revelation, he circled back and he entered God's gates with and courts with praise. In response to that troubling revelation from God, he made the choice to rejoice. To rejoice in God's character, to rejoice in God's track record, to rejoice in God's sovereignty. If you read the third chapter, he reminded himself, God is my strength, God is my salvation, God has disciplined his people before so that he could save them and restore them. He reminded himself of all the things he had forgotten in his frustration. And when you're frustrated with God, praising him will help you to remember things you have forgotten. And he reminded himself that God's delays are not God's denials and that a loving God disciplines those whom he loves. God uses strong language. says, if you're my child, I will discipline you because I care about you. And the prophet learned that when we're facing, when God faces stubborn resistance from us, his stubborn love has to act in ways that may appear unloving. Let me say that again. When facing stubborn resistance, our resistance to him, 
God's stubborn love sometimes has to act in ways that appear unloving. When my father disciplined me, I didn't say, oh, Dad, boy, I recognize that's love at work. I remember one time, right after he spanked me, he said, do you still love me? And I said, no. (laughs) So he spanked me again. And he said, do you love me? And I said, no. So he spanked me again. I never said I was the brightest bulb in the pack. And you know, after that third spanking, I just saw my dad in a new light. Because when he said, do you love me? I said, yes. (laughs) You see, here's what happens. When we're resisting God, and that requires him to get in our face, we get all bent out of shape over him getting in our face rather than getting after ourselves for resisting his love. The issue isn't God disciplining us. The issue is, why do I keep choosing things that call for God's discipline? Why do I keep pursuing things that he says aren't appropriate for me? The issue isn't God. The issue is us. See, we often assume, if I could just know exactly what God is doing, I could be okay. Have you ever said that? Yeah. I wouldn't complain if I just knew. Well, Habakkuk knew, and he complained. And here's the things I want to remind you of. The struggles of the prophet weren't unique to the prophet. When he questioned God's apparent delays, when he accused God of indifference, when he criticized God's activities, when he questioned God's plans, God's motivations, and God's heart, he was acting as the unofficial spokesman for everybody in this room. Everybody. Because we all struggle to understand God's ways and God's heart. But God isn't put off by our complaints. That's why Habakkuk is in the scriptures. That's why the lamentations, the lamenting of Jeremiah is in Scripture. That's why psalms of complaints against God, like Psalm 88, are in Scripture. It's why Psalm 142 says, I will pour out my complaints before the Lord. And you know, ancient Israel used to sing as a congregation Psalm 142. Imagine a whole congregation of people singing, I will pour out my complaints before God. Maybe we ought to do that sometime just as a reality check. God isn't put off by our complaints. He knows that they point to our limitations, not to our lack of faith or our lack of love. He's on record. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Because my ways and my thoughts are higher than yours. And many times God says, my wisdom will look foolish to you because your your perspective is so narrow 
and so limited. God isn't put off by our complaints because he knows complaining can be the path of discovering new things about God, new things about yourself, new things about God's word, and it can be the path to a deepened devotion. If you voice it with humility and like the prophet are open to correction. So the transcript of Habakkuk's rather awkward conversation with God reminds us of something that this isn't original with me. When we can't understand God's hand, we can trust his heart. When we can't understand his hand, we can trust his heart. I want you to enter into a time of prayer and if you're already a follower of Jesus and you've been giving overnight lodging to some complaint against God for far too many nights it's likely God has already talked to you during the course of this teaching and if that's the case respond to him the way Habakkuk did with humility and recognition Don't grovel. God doesn't call us to grovel. Just confess. Accept his forgiveness. And ask him to help you to remember the things that you forgot or overlooked that led you into a place of complaint. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, this teaching wasn't designed to explain the path from unbelief to belief. But perhaps one of the reasons you're not a follower of Jesus is because you've been hung up on why is there evil in the world if God is good? And God's response to Habakkuk reminds us why there's evil in the world, because we're here. Not because God is absent, but because we're here. Maybe that removed that complaint and now you're ready to receive the one who has been pursuing you for a long time. If that's the case, in the quietness of your heart, if you'll just say, Lord, I confess I have sinned against you and live my life without you. I believe that needs to change. I believe Jesus died and rose again so that I could be spiritually restored. And I take him now as my Savior. Father, thank you for being so gracious with us when we moan and groan and complain and question and find fault with an infinitely perfect God. Thank you for listening. Thank you for responding in love and grace. And thank you for including the struggles of the prophet so that we could look in that mirror and see ourselves and more importantly see you. Help us to immerse ourselves in your powerful word so that our complaints will die on the vine and our praises will take their place in Jesus name. Amen. A final word Habakkuk asked the question, how can a holy God use evil to defeat evil? And it occurred to me, 
God's ultimate answer to that question was the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, God took the evil of corrupt empire and the evil of corrupted religion, voluntarily submitted himself to those two evils so that they could execute him, so that he could once for all defeat evil in the world and open wide the doors for our restoration. And he did it voluntarily. He endured something far worse than what Judah was going to experience. And he did it entirely for our benefit, not his own. And I'd remind you, at the moment the cross was occurring, it appeared like the defeat of everything God was up to. But it proved to be the centerpiece of what God was up to. In similar fashion, you're going to encounter things in life and you're going to say, this is going to be the end of everything God promised me. Hold on, it'll probably prove to be the centerpiece of what God is up to in your life. When you can't understand His hand, trust His heart. God bless you.